Good morning and welcome back to the Thrive Subscribe podcast and yet another week of the new normal. Pharmacies and pharmacists are generally considered to be counted among the essential personnel that are continuing to be allowed to work during the shelter-in-place orders around this country uh, and even quarantine orders around the world. Uh, it is important that uh, pharmacists continue to be able to see their patients and provide the services and products uh, that are essential to the health and well-being of our patients. With almost daily changes that have been happening around the country during this pandemic, I took some time last week to just double check to see if reimbursement from our pharmacy benefit manager friends has decreased uh, since this current crisis began. And what I've found was, at least for my pharmacy, uh, the only one which I can speak for, uh, there has not been a market change in reimbursement rate over the last several months, but there has continued to be a uh, significant downward pressure on most maintenance medications uh, and we've been observing this for quite some time. I find this disappointing, as pharmacies around the country are under increased pressure every day to continue to provide the services that they do. Their overhead continues to go up because they have to modify procedures, manage drug shortages, deal with supplies that have almost certainly increased in costs across the board. Their cash flow and their ability to meet payroll is in jeopardy in many cases. Fortunately, the federal government in the United States has come along to help with some programs. But interestingly, I have read a synopsis this week that described how the pharmacy benefit managers are reacting to the pandemic. Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson, Brian Anderson, and Mark Geib from Milliman.com recently shared their thoughts on the subject, and I literally cringed when I read it. To sum up the pharmacy benefit manager strategies, they are going to decrease some of the red tape that they themselves have created in the process. Things like prior authorizations and early refills. This certainly is a welcome change and we have seen this happen especially with respect to respiratory drugs that have been in short supply. Uh, especially when they consider they have uh, rebate structures in place to prefer one brand of albuterol for example over the other. Beyond that however, their strategies really appear to center around themselves and in many cases amounted to self-referral to their own mail order prescription programs for 90-day supplies. And of course this only removes the patient from their local provider and that's not a good thing. Furthermore, they talked about how they're going to ensure the adequate supply and mitigate shortages. Well, Pharmacy benefit managers can only do this for their own pharmacies. They have no influence on purchases made by actual brick-and-mortar pharmacies out in the community. So with that, what we really need is advice on what can be done by frontline pharmacy providers. So today, Randy is going to talk with Catherine Brown, an independent pharmacy owner, and they're going to talk about what they are doing to make sure their pharmacies are prepared to take care of both their patients and their staff in this new and challenging environment. Let's listen in. Welcome everyone to uh, Thrive Subscribe in our podcast. And today I want to introduce uh, Catherine Brown. Catherine is co-owner of Main Street Pharmacy in Savannah, Tennessee. So Catherine, welcome today. Thank you, Randy. You know, Catherine, there's a lot of things happening in our world right now with the COVID-19 and, and how we have to adjust to it, especially as a community pharmacy and an owner of a community pharmacy. So before we get into some of the things that we had to do and change differently about our practices and the challenges that we have, tell me more about your practice and the services that you're providing to your community. 
Absolutely. We are a community-based pharmacy that has been open for 11 years. We've been very fortunate in our area to be so well-received. We have really focused on providing the services with delivery, non-sterile compounding, medication therapy management, MedSync, as well as nutrient depletion information. We try to really reach out to our customers and be a full-service pharmacy. We offer a lot of immunizations as well as going out into the community and offer immunization clinics to different corporations. So we've been very, very fortunate in our offerings to be able to grow like we have. And Catherine, really, with some of the things that are happening with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, changes obviously have to be made in, in some of your services and the delivery of those services. Can you provide me with some of the changes you've had to make within your practice to continue to make sure these, these services are available to your patients? Absolutely. You know, it has been a very concerning time for everyone, my staff, my patients, my family. And what we do is try to best protect our employees as well as our customers by our employees wearing the N95 masks and gloves when they do wait on them. We've actually closed the doors to the front end of our pharmacy and provide all of our services through drive-through, curbside, as well as delivery. So we've tried to provide immunizations at the car as well as delivering to the home. And, I, you know, I do request that my employees leave that medication on the doorstep instead of having direct contact, if at all possible, with the patients just to minimize their exposure. How about compounding? Are you having to make any hand sanitizer or any other special compounds to help with the community? We have actually been making hand sanitizer. Um, of course, isopropyl alcohol was very difficult to purchase, and so I went to the local liquor store and purchased PGA, which we were then able to compound with the hydrogen peroxide, et cetera, into hand sanitizer, which has been a fabulous thing to be able to provide to our customers. Just out of curiosity, um, Catherine, do you have, are there other uh, community pharmacies in your area? There are. It's interesting. Hardin County, which is where we're located, the countywide, it's under about 35,000 patients. In the city alone, it is very, very small in the you know, 3,000 range. That being said, we have multiple other community pharmacies as well as multiple big box chains. I believe that there are four other community pharmacies as well as four other big box chains in the town that we service. We do service a large other county population as well just because we are located on the Mississippi-Alabama border. And so it is a very rural area. You know, I think it's interesting as you talk about, you know, the the other pharmacies in your community and, you know, one of the things that I've seen changed within our community and, and it was three weeks ago when I thought, you know, it's important that we're all working together from a community-wide response. And so we started reaching out and created, you know, a Facebook page for our Johnson County area. And I was telling Suzanne, we've got 320 
members. And because it, it went beyond just our Johnson County, it also went to our surrounding counties and also to some people within our state. But really just to provide information that can be quickly shared with all the pharmacists within the area. Have you guys done anything similar within your community as far as the pharmacies working together more collaboratively? I mean, obviously there's drug supply chain issues. Um, are you guys talking together about how you're accessing things? Um, other pharmacies might be providing services that there might be a referral, such as a hand sanitizer. Is anything like that happening in your community? It actually is, and that's a wonderful thing that you all have done with starting the Facebook page for the group of pharmacies. I think it's an opportune time for us as community pharmacists to really work together instead of against each other. And I'm a preceptor for multiple universities, and one of my students opened a pharmacy, you know, a few miles down the road a few years ago, and we have a great relationship, as well as I sold my second store to another independent in a neighboring town back a year and a half ago. And we have all, as well as the other independents, been in communication to determine what do we do next? Because, you know, what is the standard of practice now? Do you really shut your doors? Because that was a huge thing for me to take on as an independent to not allow my customers to have that face-to-face -face chronic interaction because being in such a rural area, you do have such a close relationship with those patients. And I mean, I go to the vehicles every day and, you know, speak with people there, but just not having that one-on-one -on -one where I'm fully accessible to them all of the time. But the the interaction between the other pharmacies and myself has been wonderful because they said, you know, we were hoping you could tell us what to do. Where where do we start? Who do we reach out to? And we've bounced ideas off of each other. I was the first one to shut my doors and then they have turned in turn followed suit. And I just told them, you know, it's it's best protection for your staff as well as your customers at this point. So, but that's a great idea to start up a Facebook page where you can even have further interaction with other pharmacies. One of the questions and one of the issues that I'm having, to be honest, when you said you got N95 mask, I was envious because <laughs> I can't access them. So um, we were able to, you know, get some surgical masks. Um, and then we've had some volunteers, family members who've been very generous with their time and talents and actually make us uh, some masks as well, too. Um, but we're having a lot of difficulty accessing the uh, personal protective equipment. Um, you know, we don't have, we're not using any face shields. And I think as the pandemic spreads and, and it becomes more uh, widespread within my own community, especially as we're doing those services at curbside or home delivery, what's the ultimate protection that I can provide for my staff? I was able to uh, yesterday finally get about 18 uh, protective um, gowns, um, you know, disposable gowns that, you know, if it gets worse, that we'll probably be wearing that along with the hand, um, the hand gloves, the uh, mask, and then we got goggles. And again, that's been tough for the eye protection, but mm -hmm. not a face shield. Are you guys doing anything like that? And have you been able to access all the PPE that you need uh, to sustain yourself throughout this pandemic? Yeah. And all great questions. You know, the supply chain has been breached so substantially, and we were just fortunate enough that one of the manufacturers locally was able to provide us with some masks. That being said, 
I turned around and provided one of the physician's offices with some for their staff because they need that. PPE is so hard to come by. And the answer is no. I mean, we have the shortage on gloves. We have the shortage on masks. I can't get any more past what I already have. And I have people contacting me every day. I see my patients when I do have to go to one of the grocery stores that are wearing their homemade masks when I know they're immune compromised. And it just hurts my heart that I don't have the ability to provide them what they need and have not been able to find further sources for those supplies. So how how do you ask one of your employees to go out and not be protected? How do you ask physicians to perform these tests and not be protected? It, it's very concerning. One of the suggestions I'll make to you, uh, Catherine, it may may not help, but at least um, there's a group that will know that you are having difficulty accessing some of the PPE. But um, I'm a, a part of this. It's our Johnson County, our count, local county, but they have an emergency operating center, of which there's 66 or, or more than that now stakeholders, most of them public agencies. But they have logistics and, and the logistics team is lo looking at how can they get the PPE and distribute it amongst the first responders, amongst the hospitals, because everybody's having trouble getting access to this. So I threw in my request mm -hmm. as far as from a community pharmacy perspective, and I said, I realize that we got to really give it to um, the first responders and the health systems first. But I said, if you've got any extra, I said, we're running low. And they they didn't understand that initially. They said, you know, we didn't think about that. I said, we're still providing services. We still have access to our patients. Patients have access to us. So I just want to make sure that, you know, if we do get some extra. So I, I would encourage you to see within your local jurisdiction if there is anything like that and just make sure that you're feeding information to them as far as what your needs are as well. Absolutely. You know, the county as well as the local physicians, we all have a great relationship and work well with each other to help provide each other what we need. And I don't think that a lot of times they realize that we are also a first responder because my first patient on that Monday morning when I locked the doors came through with severe respiratory infection. He had been sick for two weeks, negative flu, negative strep. We're providing him with zithromycin and breathing treatments. And I asked him, I said, did they test you? And the answer was no, because at that time, for the first day, he had not been febrile. And so, therefore, he did not qualify to be tested. And he said, I've been sick for two weeks, and I've never had anything like this. And I'm standing, you know, within a car length distance, counseling him through my window. And... Thankfully, I had a mask at that point, but he didn't know whether he was COVID positive because they didn't test him. So, you know, that's my concern as a community pharmacist is I'm putting my staff at risk because it's not the people that have been tested that have already been quarantined that just don't have the results yet. It's the patients that weren't tested because at that time didn't meet the stringent criteria. Yeah, and I tell you, you hear more and more stories where people um, who were not tested because of their age and not having any high risk or being at risk and not having all the traditional symptoms and then progressing very severely, you know, and, and it's scary because one of the things we've instituted too, Catherine, is that I want everybody now to wear masks in the pharmacy because I'm like, at this point, if someone's been exposed, they could be, you know, um, 
sloughing off virus before they even know that they're sick. So, you know, it's more protecting everybody at that point as well. But then I had an interesting um, Facebook um, post last night by one of the pharmacists who said, you know, is there a way that um, um, prescribers and, and um, other healthcare providers can work together and, and warn us in advance that they're sending a patient over because they just had a patient been sent over who is COVID-19 positive and without giving them that heads up. And they said, you know, that changes how we would react to the patient and what we do after the patient is gone as well too, as far as sanitizing and, and doing the best that we can. And I said, that's interesting because I said, I, I don't know legally what we can do as far as, you know, communicating that. I'm sure there's some things that people are concerned about HIPAA and everything else, but at the same time, we got to make sure we're reducing community spread. So I think we've got to look at ways of how do we communicate that information and then what do we need to do to ultimately provide protection to our staff? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I think it's a great concept. The thing that we're seeing in this area is that the tests are being performed and the labs are so backlogged that it's taking you know, up to a week plus to get some of the results, depending on where those tests have been sent off to. Is that an issue that you all have run into? Oh, absolutely. I mean, testing is just not out there as much as we would like it to be. And and so that's a challenge. And whatever tests we get are going into the health systems, and then they'll make the determination based upon symptomatology and the risk level of the patient if they're going to do testing or not. So a lot of people are not getting tests. There are a lot of people who are. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are just saying, no, you know, so that w the, really the numbers that are out there, we really don't know. Right. Because there's people who probably have it right. sent home and saying just treat symptomatically. So, yeah, that's an issue for us as well. Yeah. And, and that's the huge issue is, does the patient have it? Are we just unaware at this point? And now have I made my staff susceptible to that, um, as well as the fact of, you know, finding thermometers. We actually service one of the county jails, and they needed the infrared thermometers. You can't get them from any source that I'm aware of at this point. And, you know, I've had multiple calls, whether it's the LifeLight group that needs the infrared thermometers, you know, what are these different corporations putting into place for the testing? Do they test their staff for fever prior to them entering the building? I know at our county courthouses, they were actually using one of the infrared scanners and scanning people before they were allowing them to come into the door. And then after that point, you know, they have gone to where they've shut down the, the front of the facility because Tennessee went under a stay-at-home policy as of last night. But is that an issue that you've been looking at also with supply? And what do you do for your staff? We have a ear thermometer that has the covers where you can change out the cover for them. But I was not able to get an infrared for my staff. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good question. We um we just made the decision. So yesterday everybody has to wear a mask. Um, then what we're putting into play um, today is that there'll be a series of uh, three or four questions. To, you know that they have to sign off on um, about symptomatology, right? Um, and then if, and so they have to sign off saying, nope, I do not have these symptoms. Um, we had ordered two um, uh, infrared thermometers from Amazon because we can't access any thermometers from our traditional wholesaler means. They're wiped out of those now, but I would encourage mm -hmm. you to maybe look at Amazon, but they cost us about a hundred bucks each. <laughs> and I got one for both of our pharmacies. Right. 
And so we'll be instituting that. Uh, not only will we have these questions asked, but then we also will be doing um, temperature readings as well and documenting that along the way. You know, one of the things that was interesting, um, Kelly Kent, my business partner, listened to a webinar more from a lawyer perspective and he said you know one of the things you have to think about and this is you know the challenges of being an owner is nine months from now when this thing is over um will your employees look back and saying my employer did all they did to protect me and i thought that was really interesting so i don't think we can be overly cautious at this time no and you know that was one of the things that i looked at is how could I live with myself if I didn't do everything in my power to protect my employees? And I even told the my people that do curbside and wait on the window, if at any point you're not comfortable, you come get me and I'll do it myself because I don't want them to feel as though they have been put past their comfort level of risk. I want them to know that how important that they are to me and to my business. And, you know, I won't ever ask them to do anything I wouldn't myself. So that's something, you know, as independent pharmacy. And another point that I think is almost humorous, Randy, is you do realize that we are independent pharmacy and how powerful we were, are. And you just told me you had to go buy something off of Amazon. Shame, shame. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally. <laughs> how agree. unfortunate for us all. Absolutely, absolutely, and stuff. And uh, yeah, I think it's kind of ironic. But too. we have to do it. We do. We got to. Yeah. We got to. It, it's so unfortunate, though. It is. It is. We have to be creative ourselves. But the other thing I'll tell you, though, what I've realized during this time, Catherine, is the importance of that relationship that we have with our patients and our providers within the community. That that really is starting to rise to the top, and I'm hoping that we can capture the stories that we're doing for our communities, for our patients, working with other providers. We provided a gallon of hand sanitizer to the local police department. We've, and you know, for free, we're trying to make sure everybody has the protection that they have as mm -hmm. well too. And uh, we need to capture this because when this thing is all over and I think about Medicare Part D and how community pharmacy helped save that program when it was implemented and then everybody kind of forgot about us, right? Now, I don't right. want people to forget about what community pharmacy was doing during this time and the pharmacist and staff, um, the things that they were doing to ensure that services were being delivered, that critical uh, access to critical medications continued on, and that they were putting themselves on a at risk to make this happen as well, too. And by gosh, you know, we need to be recognized for that and recognized not just for what we did, but in the future recognize as a provider and that we get paid for these, these kind of services that we're providing. So any thoughts about that? Absolutely. Definitely. And I'm a member of many different Facebook boards for independent pharmacy. And one of the things that I almost found laughable is here we are sitting fighting the PBMs, fighting for payment, fighting with the insurance companies to provide us the same payment that the big box chains have. And the last time I checked, the PBMs were not on the essential providers list of essential services, but pharmacists sure were. We're at the front line, and we and physicians need to take this opportunity to say, hey, legislators, quit what you're doing and realize that we're the ones that provide the service. We're the ones that were on the front line. We're the ones that were at risk. You know, you did not provide us with proper payment, and here these people who are non-essential are the ones that are getting paid for the services that we provide. 
and put our foot down. And we need to really band together to do that. Yeah, I think this is absolutely essential time. And I want all our listeners to hear this is to be capturing our stories and, and documenting the things that we have done so that when we go back, we can use that information to advocate on our behalf and work with legislators. Um, you know, on the phone call that I'm on every day with the Emergency Operating Center, we have our lo- legislators for the state um, and local that are listening in. And so they've been asking questions specifically about the drug supply chain and what are the things that you're doing and what are some of the services you continue to provide in the community. So they're hearing it firsthand, but I want to capture each one of the things that we're doing that I can share after this is over and saying this is the value of what community pharmacists can bring you know, to the healthcare system. So everybody needs to be capturing their stories right now. Yeah, we've really kind of put ourselves in a financial bind for the fact that we want our patients to be able to have that 90-day supply that makes them more comfortable, which in turn rolled over to purchasing more medications from our wholesaler. And by doing so, you know, my drug bill grew astronomically within a 15-day time span. So, you know, it does put me in a financial crunch of, ooh, i got to pay that bill here in two weeks, but these insurance companies aren't going to pay me for 30, 60, 90 days. And how do you look at that? Is that something that you all have run into as well? Is, of course, we've seen the reimbursement decrease along the way, especially with certain plans that we've had issues with lately. And now all of a sudden I've got this big bill that's come to you. Yeah, we're seeing it. You know, we have uh, two uh, pharmacies that we're running and the inventory on both of them have increased substantially. Um, Part of it is realizing the drug supply chain shortages that are out there, uh, making sure we have medications when they do become accessible, which is a full-time job, just watching the drug supply chain as well. Um, But, um, in addition to people needing a larger supply, we're also trying to implement to everyone that because of the drug supply chain issues, we want to keep everybody at a 30-day supply, even though I know everybody's probably get a 90-day. Well, that's great, except, guys, we don't have enough drug <laughs> to be able to do that. So we're still Correct. And days. that was something we hit, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, but and I think that that's definitely wise. There... Go ahead. You know, just I ran into it with some of my insulins that I couldn't provide them to patients. And I had to finally ask that serious question. How desperately do you need this medication or are you just trying to prepare ahead? I'll be happy to deliver it to you, you know, over the 30 day time course. But my wholesaler doesn't have it. And there are people that need it now. So those are the serious questions that we had to have with some of our customers. Absolutely. Yeah. Then the financials, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, as you have, uh, cash is king, right? No matter what, cash is king and probably even more so now. So that if you were a, a pharmacy where you had, you know, resources and, and you were not, didn't have a bad cash flow, you're probably doing okay in the interim, but that's not going to last long term. And so we have looked at that. And so we made some hard decisions as being owners as far as, you know, not taking out distributions and throwing that back into the corporation to keep our cash flow healthy. We got to make sure that I can pay payroll. I got to make sure I can get the inventory that I need. So my mind's going 100 miles an hour. You know, today I'll be having a call with my banker and my accountant to look at some of the programs that are out there from the stimulus package, such as the um, the payment protection uh, program, PPP, and the EIDL for emergency loans that you can get access to, because we're just looking at from a long-term um, standpoint of 
how's my cash flow and how do I keep it strong? Is that something you're looking at as well? Most definitely. I actually, for the last few days, have been looking at the PPP and EIDL and do we qualify? Do I need that money? And, you know, going out and taking out a loan isn't something that I would really ever consider. I've been fortunate to be in business for, you know, 11 years and we do have a fabulous business. But I have to look at the long term of, you know, we have seen a small decrease in the number of acute prescriptions that we're filling due to the fact that the patients aren't going to the physicians because they don't want to possibly expose themselves. And so that's been a concern. And what's the long-term replication issue that we're going to see? You know, what what is that going to do to me a month from now or 60 days from now as we continue to look at the script number and track it closely to be sure that, you know, that's not so substantially declining that we won't be able to meet, you know, the financial needs of the company 60 and 90 days down the road. So PPP definitely is something I actually also have an appointment with my accountant today and spoke with my banker yesterday regarding it as well as the EIDL. And is that something that we need to look at as well? Have you yeah, all seen any decreases in your script volume? Yeah, I keep an eye on that too. You know, and I always laugh because I always say I'm not a, really a numbers guy, but when I start thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> so I am watching all the financials. Yeah, I'm watching. I, them. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I definitely say I'm more the people person and the the face of the pharmacy at times, but definitely I'm a numbers person as well as to you know. How do we make it work so that we can take care of our staff and our community? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, when you look at our pharmacy, um, I really have it divided up into really five areas, and each area has to be financially stable on its own. So, you know, we have the, the dispensing area, and uh, we've seen our numbers being maintained during this time. So we're, you know, so we keep an eye on that. Then we got our clinical services area, and we continue to provide the medication therapy management services that you talked about. MedSync has gone up even higher as we're trying to get more patients synced up for home delivery and, and curbside delivery. Um, we still provide, you know, the immunizations, like you said, the long-acting um, injectables for the antipsychotics. We continue to provide those as well too. Um, you know, we're part of a, a couple of payer programs within the state that, that we still provide those services that doesn't go away during this time. So the clinicals bring in quite a bit of revenue for us as well. Then we've got our compounding and the compounding is really going very well right now just because people are having to think outside the box. So it's not just a hand sanitizer, but we're also making ketamine trochies um, for a local office as well, too, that we didn't make in the past. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's something that's different for us as well. And then we've got our long-term care, which includes both our group homes and our, our nursing homes. And so that um, that's really, you know, uh, maintain its numbers. If, if anything, it's probably increased just because some of the acute things that people have to get as well too. And the, and the last and, and certainly not least is uh, the front end, which includes underworld medical equipment. You know, the challenge for me is I'm a CPAP provider. And so you still got to provide, you know, CPAP supplies, but people are asking questions about, you know, they're using a CPAP and, and spread and things like that. And so the, the manufacturers have provided some good resources for that as well. But our front end is increasing, um, even though we have the lobby closed, just because we're making sure when we talk to our patients that, especially those patients who are at risk, 
that we want to make sure they keep safe? What do they need from a front end? So that's part of our questioning when we call them uh, during the appointment-based model um, is to ensure that they've got the supplies that they need um, to get them through this this pandemic. So I would say right now, um, everything is, is going well, but you need to be proactive and you need to be watching your numbers and then you need to respond very, very quickly. Absolutely, I completely agree. MedSync for us has been huge. We've had it in place for years, but have really, really focused in the last year on growing the program. We have, I think, 48% of our clientele enrolled in that program. And since this has hit, we definitely have increased that number. I've also used it as an opportunity to be sure that they have the front-end products that they need, as well as taking the time to discuss with my patients about nutrient depletion. And then if we do have patients calling in a single prescription, we take that opportunity to write them, look at their profile and say, you know, hey, you have a refill on this that you have not gotten, do you need these other medications? To try to help the patient to make less trips to the pharmacy, as well as in, you know, provide that service, and it also helps on your bottom line. So my last question for you, Catherine, is we've talked about the drug supply chain, and you know, there's a variety of medications that I look at every day. Um, I cannot access hydroxychloroquine at this time, and or, or tablets of azithromycin, which are being used in combination to treat patients with the COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, I'm looking at the albuterol inhalers. You know, we have had um, some of the payers saying that they're not going to hold you to um, a formulary that you can freely, you know, um, substitute with the albuterols. And the challenge is, you know, as soon as you say that, then everybody buys up all the generics because they were not on formulary. Right now that people are buying out, so I can't access the generics. Right. So I'm still able to access the more expensive ones, which is fine. I want to just make sure we have access to it. So I let people, you know, within the Johnson County group know about that, that, you know, there are those issues. Um, you know, the going meter dose inhalers in general, though, are being used more by the hospitals to reduce mm -hmm. spread because of the nebulization and aerialization. And they're trying to reduce that component of it as well. So watching that spacers and holding chambers are being used more. There's not a shortage yet, but I think people need to be watching that because as they switch people from nebulizers to a meter dose inhaler um, and using the spacers as a way to help those patients who normally can't use a meter dose inhaler, um, you know, that's something that's going to be in, in use more. Tylenol products, you know, I'm watching that on a daily basis just because I'm having difficulty accessing that. Um, hospice, we were a hospice pharmacy and, um, you know, we had to make a switch from lorazepam liquid to tablets because I can't get the concentrate of that. And I need to be watching very closely uh, morphine um, because as we look at comfort care kits, um, right now the morphine supply is there, but, you know, morphine is one of those things that will be used more, um, you know, the liquid for those patients who might be treating for palliative care and, and to help them if they're having challenges with their breathing. So, so there's a, a variety of different things within the, the supply chain that we have to watch. So that's been a huge component of my day. Is that true for you as well? It is. I actually have a technician that is over my ordering system. And, you know, it's interesting when this all first came into fruition, I actually text her on Sunday. I was at a bowling tournament with my children and said, I need you to pull up our ordering system right now and verify that these things aren't in short supply because 
I need to be able to be sure that I have enough for my patients in the coming week. And we have had issues, the same as you are with the azithromycin. At times, I have been able to get the hydroxychloroquine in for my RA patients, so that's been fortunate. But, you know, it's hit and miss, and we're having to look at it throughout the day constantly, as well as, you know, the the nebulizer masks and the albuterol inhalers, as well as other inhalers. Some of the steroid inhalers for us have gone on back order at times, and I actually have a patient that's on acetylcysteine. And that has been a super hard to get item because, of course, they're using it for its mucolytic effects and it is, you know, being used up by the hospitals instead of us being able to provide it for the community use that I have it for. Well, obviously, Catherine, there's a lot of challenges right now, but it sounds like you've done a great job to to meet those challenges and be a resource for your community. So I truly appreciate uh, you taking the time today. I think this is timely information for pharmacists. I think lot, there's lots of questions about what do I do? How do I do it? And I think some of the information you provided will be helping the listeners with this. So thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Randy. I appreciate you all inviting me, and thank you to all the community pharmacists for all that you do and for being in the front line and, you know, putting yourselves out there to provide the services to your patients. And, you know, I just definitely feel like it's an opportune time for us to all band together. I've always said that, you know, we as community pharmacists need to band together and see what works as a whole instead of holding our ideas as our own. And we really need to take this opportunity to show our legislators and the people that put the payments in place that we're the essential workers and we provided the service and you need to provide us the proper payment structure to allow us to continue on because we're essential to our communities from a financial standpoint as well as a medical standpoint. Well, I think but thank those you are, so much for having me today. Absolutely. And I think those are good words for us to end on with a, such a positive message. So again, thank you very much. The Thrive Subscribe podcast is brought to you by Thrive Pharmacy Transformations. Visit us online at tptransformations.com, where you can join our free community to inspire you, challenge you, and transform your pharmacy practice.